0: Hello, hey, Rich. It's Larson. You got a
1: minute? Sure, Larson. What's up?
0: Hello and welcome to the Got a Minute podcast. This is Larson Hicks, and I'm joined by Pastor Rich Lusk. It's good to have you here, sir. Uh, Welcome back,
1: be with you, Larson.
0: Yeah, man, it's good to get back into a a groove here uh, after uh, after our holiday hiatus. So, uh, so it it was a great uh, great conversation last week. We talked about um, Genesis three, and man, that got my that really. um, I feel like you mentioned uh, Van Til and how every question he was asked kind of took him back to Genesis three, and I feel like. I've I've felt very Vantillian since that conversation because I'm 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 doing the same thing. Like every conversation, I'm like, well, really, really you gotta go back to Genesis three. Well, uh, I wanna let, let me let me jump
1: yeah. in here and put in a plug for Van Till because I think Van Till's yeah. been uh I, Van probably always been widely misunderstood by both critics and fans of his. I think sometimes mm-hmm. uh his fans really do treat Van Til's presuppositionalism as a kind of fideism, you know, we, we believe the okay. Bible, we, we, you know we accept the Bible and, uh, you know, then that, that, that functions as our authority and that kind of settles everything, but we can't really give reasons for why we believe the Bible. And then on the other hand, you've got people who are critics of Van Til who think that Van Til dismissed, uh, anything that might come from natural revelation, uh, mm-hmm. any use of reason, all of those are horrible misunderstandings of Van Til. Van Til actually argues for the truth of the Christian worldview from what's called the impossibility of the contrary, Uh, nothing Mm -hmm. contrary. So, so, so basically what he says is we can talk about all these different ways that we glean knowledge about the world through reason, through sense experience and testimony that's passed down to us and so forth. Uh, We could talk about science. We could talk about ethics. We could talk about aesthetics uh, and so on. But what Van Til argues is that all of those things presuppose the reality of the triune God. They can, you can only Mm -hmm. make sense of them if the triune God exists. So it's kind of like, um, you know, if I deny that God exists, um, that's like denying air exists. I continue to breathe Right. I continue to breathe in the air, even as I deny that air exists. Those who right. deny God's existence are still dependent upon him in order to make whatever sense out of reality that, 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 that they can. Right. Uh, which you know even unbelievers by God's common grace are able to understand something certainly. So that's part of it. The other thing is Van Til does not dismiss natural revelation out of hand. He, in fact I think one of his most you know a lot of people read defense of the faith which is a really good overview of basically the 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 foundational argument for the Christian faith that you cannot make sense out of reason, science or ethics without presupposing God. Uh but I think his um, his work, Intro to Systematic Theology, is probably his most important work because that's where he really talks a lot about natural revelation in relationship mm-hmm. to special revelation and develops all these different categories. Really, really important book, and you mm. see that is not at all opposed to the use of empirical evidence or things of that nature in making our argument, and that actually factors into all of these questions about male and female, and that kind of thing what we what we believe about male and female as we, we talked about last week uh, is not is not arbitrary, uh, and god 's commands for male and female are not arbitrary; they fit with the way God made us with our design, and actually, if we investigate carefully uh, into what men are like and what women are like, our basic, you know, our basic creational design. We see that it meshes perfectly with what God has commanded us to do to the extent that it does not mesh. That's due to the fall, of course. So if you sometimes feel like as a man, those manly duties or commands that God has given to you are hard for you to fulfill, it's because sin has gotten in the way and distorted and warped your manhood and same for women. Right. Right. Uh, but the creational design, the evidence of the creational design is very much there, and that's something that would be very consistent with Van Till to, to draw that out. So yeah, Van Til, so any, any, anytime any issue came up, it seems like Van Till always wanted to go back to those opening chapters of Genesis, creation, fall, redemption. Genesis yeah. 3 is unique because it's the one chapter of the Bible where you have creation, fall, and redemption all in one chapter at the beginning of the chapter right. creation is still pristine. Obviously then there's the fall into sin, but by the time you get to Genesis three fifteen, and God's passing out curses to the serpent and the man and the woman, God also gives out blessings and promises in that same context. And so you've got the promise mm-hmm. of redemption. So creation, fall, redemption, all in the same chapter.
0: When you, when you were talking about Van Til, um, I, it, it it made me think about this thing that, that, well, I'm, I'm, I'm also, I'm reading, um, I'm reading, uh, the, uh, rise and fall of, or rise and, uh, what is it? The, the rise and triumph of the modern self. Um, oh yeah.
1: Carl Truman's book. Yeah. Carl Truman's
0: book, book. Yeah, yeah. And, and I feel like the, the thing that he argued, one of the important points he makes early in the book. And, and I think, uh, Rachel, I think Rachel Jankovic makes the same point in her you who book. Um, but just this idea that, like, you don't actually have to. It's not even that. And and I think this is what Van Til's arguing that that it's it's not even that you have to. You don't have to lie um, to to believe something, uh, or to act in a way that that doesn't um, align with what you actually believe. As a matter of fact, most people don't really know what it is that they believe. They're they're acting in accordance with. I think I think. Um, truman calls it the social imaginary Mm -hmm. um it's it's kind of this uh it's it's sort of the way that people see the world it's kind of another word maybe for worldview but it's not a worldview that somehow is it like where people have formally adopted any particular philosophical view they're just living in a they're living with in accordance with kind of the spirit of the age and you have to sort of you know, when you sit there and unpack it, you realize that oh, this is driven by this this philosophy that's been that's been uh, pushed for fifty, hundred, two hundred years um, or, or more. Um, but but nobody really actually knows anything about you know existentialism or you know I, like I was kind of blown away by Truman's. Uh, there were some things about um, Cartesian philosophy that I had never thought about. Like I'm, I'm a big fan, you know, I'm a big fan of Oigan Rosenstock QC and he kind yeah, of, yeah. he kind of pits, you know, his philosophy, his respondeo. It's, it's a mutabor. I, I will respond, although I will be, uh, I will be changed. He was, he kind of pits that against cogito Ergo Sum. I think therefore I am. Um, but there was something about, um, and I love that. I've, I've always loved that, uh, Husey's kind of approach and, and, and react response to him. But, but what Truman talks about is like the Kogi, like, I think, therefore I am like how individualistic that is, um, and how he's really at the rock bottom, that philosophy is saying truth originates with me, like truth originates in my own head. Um, and, uh, and that's where we are, you know, I mean, we, that that's, everyone looks inside for truth now. Uh, Because anyway, I just thought that was pretty,
1: pretty Truman's book. You don't have to have read Rousseau or Freud or Marx or any of these, you know, towering historical figures in order to be influenced by them, because a lot of the influence trickles down. And so we can talk about the social imaginary. It's, It's basically the kind of what's in the air we breathe. What's what's the what's the cultural uh, environment right. that we find ourselves in. And that's going to shape us in all kinds of ways. And it can shape us in good ways. If, if it's, if it's, uh, influenced by the right. Bible right. or in bad ways, if it's, uh, some, you know, foreign philosophy, some idolatrous philosophy. And obviously in our day, uh, all, there's just a very toxic idolatrous mix in the social imaginary right. that really detaches people from reality. So, so, so one of, one of the fundamental ways that Truman gets at this is he says that in the pre-modern world uh everything was about objectivity there's a world outside of me that i have to conform mm-hmm. myself to and now right. in our sort of postmodern uh existence uh we have what's called individual expressivism um, right. and, and so the whole idea is my feelings determine reality my feelings dictate reality truth is what i feel it to be and so i may have the body of a man but if i feel like i'm a woman then i am a woman uh, or right. vice versa. And so right. um, that, that's really where he, he goes with that. So basically he's asking the question, how did this statement that I am a woman trapped in a man's body ever come to make any sense? Because right. you don't have to go that far back in history where people would just think that's utter nonsense. No, you are what your body says you are. That's, that's part of objective reality. It doesn't change. It doesn't depend on your feelings. And now of course, feelings override everything. Uh, so, And that that's not because everybody went and read certain philosophers who, who teach right. that. Though they're certainly out there. Uh, but right. there's this kind of trickle down. So, so we can talk about the social imaginary. That's Truman's language. Um, in politics, sometimes people talk about the Overton window. That's sort of the realm of yeah. what seems to be plausible or possible, sure. or, or actually sociologists will talk about the, pl- you know, the plausibility structures of a society, mm-hmm. the things that seem plausible or implausible. And as our culture continues to depart from the Christian faith, which has sort right. of been the touchstone and and really at the core, even though obviously not everybody is a believer or has been a believer, the Christian faith has been highly influential. As that influence wanes, uh, what happens is I, I think you're seeing people drift more and more from reality. God's the ultimate right. reality so you cut right. yourself off from God, you're going to cut yourself off from the rest of reality. And what right. you end up with is this um, sort of transgender fantasy land where right. you can make reality be whatever you want it to be. There are no givens in nature. You don't have a given right. nature. Everything is plastic. Everything's malleable. Uh, you can make reality be whatever you want it to be. The problem is that just right. doesn't work in the real world. And when you make feelings your final authority, it always leads to disaster uh, because feelings are not designed to carry that kind of weight.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, and this to, is why. To, well I, was, I was just going to say one other thing about that when it comes to male and female, I think this, this is the, the single biggest thing we see happening in our culture today yeah. is the, the, there's this rebellion against any kind of objective definition of what it means to be a man or objective right. definition of what it means to be a woman. Matt Walsh obviously did his documentary. What is yeah. a woman on this whole, on this whole thing. Uh, but, um, the whole idea that, that as a man, my bodily reality as a man my identity as a man that that there's a god-given set of obligations and responsibilities that come with being a man and for a woman there is a set of god-given obligations and responsibilities that come with being a woman and those are not the same that men and women have different domains in which they operate or different uh the, the 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 center of their life the core of your life as a man is going to be different than the core of a woman's life um, your, your, your fundamental roles, uh, that you play and, and, and certain aspects of your nature, who you are, that those things are different. That's highly offensive today because again, we live in a culture where people want to pretend that reality is whatever we make it to be. And really what that means for the sexes is is some kind of androgyny. There's really no such thing as a man. There's no such thing as a woman. You can be, you can be masculine if you want, even if you're a woman or you can be feminine if you want, even if you're a man, or you can be uh some kind of combination you don't you could be uh you don't have to know what you are exactly uh you can say you're some combination or no sex at all that you're asexual, so you know the, obviously those are all departures from reality, those are ways of rebelling against reality, those are various forms of idolatry, but that's where we are as a culture,
0: yeah. Well and I think I think this is an important way to set up our conversation again for today because because I think and and we talked a little bit about this last week, but how is this social imaginary formed? If it's not formed by formal study of of Rousseau and and Freud and Marx and, and the and these these um philosophers who sort of created these these ideas, where did how how are they formed? How is it that everybody believes these things? And I think I think what Truman would say and, and certainly what somebody like um, James Jordan would say is it's all about the stories. It's all about the stories you believe, the stories that you uh, and 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 right. uh, somebody like uh, Jordan Peterson would call them the myths, you know, that the, the, these myths are these not myth in the sense that it's not true, but myth in the sense that it is deeper than true. It's 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 a it's a lens for understanding how the world works. And so.
1: Or philosophers so think, would sometimes call the meta narratives kind of a big overarching story within which we see yes. ourselves living. Yeah,
0: yeah, and that's and that's what that's what the that's what's forming our social imaginary. And 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 so you've got Disney and all, all all the different media, you know, Hollywood putting out stuff that sort of portrays a world through that lens and kind of helps flesh that out for people through stories. So you know, we could ask have you read rousseau and nobody would nobody has read rousseau but you could say but have you seen the marvel movies or have you seen right, right. from the boy and you know and, oh yeah. yeah i we i know all that stuff um and so i think i think what uh what what you're pointing to in genesis 3 is the fact that this is one of those essential myths or essential types, essential meta-narratives for Christians to grasp, God, I think this is what this is what uh Jordan and Lightheart talk a lot about is, you know, God could have given us a systematic theology. You know, He mm-hmm. could have He could have said, hey, let me give you, let me lay it all out for you in philosophical terms, but but instead what we get is a Bible that's mostly stories. Um that's right. right. That's right. And and this is like the story. You know, this is the story. Right. And Christians, right. because Christians don't don't understand it, don't see it, have boiled it down to a a really, really simple propositional truth, they're, they're, they've allowed their, their um, worldview, their social imaginary, uh, call what you will meta narrative to be formed by, by other things, and and so are susceptible, are very susceptible to all of these lies that are just in the air today.
1: Yeah, that's right. So the Bible is full of stories. It's full of poetry. It's full of wisdom sayings. Yeah. Uh, But also you can look at the Bible as one big story. From beginning to end, it's one big story. And the the prophecy and the poetry and the songs and the wisdom sayings, all that's set inside of the story and contributes to the story. But the Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, is one big story. We would say that is our meta-narrative. It's the true story uh, of the world. It's the the true story of God and his creation, the true story of God and his people. And so that's what's got to be foundational. And that's what provides the lens through which we are to look at the rest of reality because we can say this is the... The big story we're living in—it's the story of God's creation, God's kingdom. It's the crea- it's the story of creation, fall, redemption, right. uh, and and so that's you know that that's how it all uh, fits together. So <clears throat> what I, you know we left off last time in Genesis three talking about the sex specific curses in Genesis three. So um, we we talked last time about how uh, the, the 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 particular roles and. Uh, callings that God assigned to the man and the woman are evident uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, even before the fall. So, for example, the man's headship does not come in as punishment for the fall. Uh, it's already established before the fall into sin that the man is the head. Uh, there, there's, a, for lack of a better term, a kind of patriarchal structure that's set up in the creation. Uh, And, of course, that's not at all demeaning. We see that the woman is actually the crown and glory of creation. She is the Mm -hmm. crown and glory of the man. Uh, So there's nothing demeaning or devout or in that in any way devalues her uh when we say that the man is the head but they'll have different roles to play just like in a dance between a man and a woman uh in in a classic dance the man's going to lead the woman's going to follow they each have their part to play and that's really a way to think about it or i talked about a choir you know it's the the whole the, the creation mandate belongs to the human race as a whole to men and women uh, but you're gonna you have men singing the bass part and women singing the soprano part, and you're never gonna find a woman who can sing bass or a man who can sing soprano. We just have different right. parts to play. So uh, to say that the, that men are more oriented towards dominion and women are more oriented towards multiplication, uh, that that's, that fits perfectly with our natures and with what we see in the rest of Scripture, including the curses. That come down in Genesis chapter three, where the woman is cursed in her relationship with her children and her husband, because, Mm -hmm. uh, that domestic household life is the core is right at the core of who she is. Doesn't mean she can't do other things, but it's the core of who she is. And the man is cursed in the realm of work, productivity, and provision. He's cursed in the realm of dominion and subduing the earth because that's at the core of who he is. So the curses touch us at the very center of what we are called to do as men and women. The curses are not androgynous. Now, one thing i like to point out is that you have these sex-specific curses in Genesis 3, a curse given specifically to the man, a curse given specifically to the woman. She's cursed at the core of womanhood. He's cursed at the core of manhood. Elsewhere in Scripture, later on in Scripture, we find lots of sex-specific commands that have to do with our sanctification. Yeah, so when we yeah. talk about men and women growing in virtue and holiness and Christ-likeness, that does not look identical in a man uh, and in a woman, it's going to look different. Yeah. For, a, for a, a godly man is going to manifest his godliness in masculine ways. A godly woman will manifest her godliness, her Christ likeness, her virtue in feminine yeah. ways. And so, if yeah. you've got, so just to, to take one very well known example, in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul is giving commands about marriage, he gives certain commands to the to the man as the husband and as the head, as the Christ figure in the relationship. And he gives another set of commands to the woman as the church figure uh, yeah, in the yeah. relationship. And so the man yeah. is commanded to do things like uh, to, uh, to, to love and cherish and nourish his wife. And she's commanded to do things like submit, obey and respect. Uh, so different commands. And of course it's it's pointed out uh, again and again, that these are complementary. God commands um the the, the commands that God gives to the man and the woman are complementary. God commands women to respect their husbands because men thrive on respect and God commands husbands to love their wives because what a woman needs more than anything is to be loved and cherished by her husband. So there's a, there's a fittingness again to these commands. There's nothing arbitrary about it. Uh, so I think that that's really, really important to understand.
0: Yeah. When, when we talk about Christ, i I'm, this is one of those questions that could get me in trouble, but I'm just going to ask it anyway. Um, but you know, we talk about Christ likeness for, for women. Um, I, I'm not, I'm certain, I certainly would, would argue, uh, and, and believe that, that women need to be Christlike. Um, but there's also, um, there's also, w- women also need to be churchlike, you know, they exactly. need to be bride, yes. bride of Christlike, like, right. like their, their model um, is the bride of Christ it, 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 it and so there's obviously aspects of Christ's character that they're imitating as well but but that, but you know we're told and we're told in uh in scripture that man is the you know man is the image and and representative essentially of 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 Christ that that we uh that men and that's why men don't cover their heads um and uh and women are the are the image and glory of their husbands. Um, so, so that there is, so I, I, anyway, I think that that's, but that we don't see that as, I don't know if you've read Becca Merkel's book, um, Eve in Exile. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's a great book. But yeah, so she, she talks a lot about this, this idea that, um, you know, the, one of the, the most glorious things about Christ is that Christ was an equal to God and and yet didn't consider himself as an equal, but submitted himself to God yeah. and that yeah. submission it, it, is a glorious thing.
1: That's right. Yeah, there's a kind of Trinitarian model. And I, I think if you want scriptural support for this, you could go to First Corinthians 11, where uh, Paul actually says God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. So there's kind of this, I don't want to say chain yeah. of command that doesn't that that's not that doesn't quite capture it. But there is a right. kind of hierarchical um set of relationships there. So yes, Jesus as the eternal son of God is equal to his father and yet willingly and lovingly submitted himself to his father to fulfill the mission that his father gave to him in the same way. Uh, the woman is equal to the man, if we're talking about worth and value, but she's different in her calling. And, and so uh, out of love and respect towards her husband, she's to submit to his leadership. And in doing so, according to 1 Corinthians 11, I would say the man-woman relationship, the husband-wife relationship, actually is patterned after and revelatory of the Trinitarian relationship right, right, of the father good. and the son. So it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, the wife's submission to her husband's headship manifest the Trinity in some way. In Ephesians chapter five, the wife's submission to the husband's headship manifests the Christ church relationship. That's what we usually focus on. And I think with good reason, Uh, but uh, but both, both I think are are in play when we talk about submission and then you can see that submission is really not degrading. It's submission. It's, it's getting on board with your husband's mission and helping him to fulfill his mission. So another way you see this in the early chapters of Genesis, of course, the man names the woman and she accepts, in fact, he does so twice, once before the fall and again, after the fall and before the fall, uh, there's this naming, which indicates again, his authority over her, Uh, before the fall into sin. After the fall, when he names her Eve, mother of the living, that's indicating this is what her role will be. Motherhood, which we'll come back and talk about more in just a minute, but mother of the living. that They've just brought death into the world through their sin, Mm -hmm. but she's going to be the mother of the living, which means that uh, they have accepted God's promise. They are trusting in God's redemptive promise that he will send one who will crush the skull of the serpent mm-hmm. and who will reverse the effects of the fall. So yeah. uh, it, it's really a glorious thing there. And the woman, of course, will have her role to play in this work of redemption, which, of course, ultimately you see with Mary uh, giving birth to uh, to to, to the Messiah. Uh, But then at the end of first Timothy chapter two, when Paul says women will be saved through the childbirth, I think that is a reference to Mary giving birth to the Messiah, the woman's role uh, as the, as the mother of the Christ, the Christ bearer. But I think also it's a way of saying when women stick with the vocation God has assigned to them in Scripture right. and in nature, then they are uh, not as prone to wander off into sin and, and recapitulate the fall of, uh, of the first woman uh, into sin. So, you know, here, here, here's a way to think about what happens in Genesis three. And I touched on this last time, but I want to develop it a little bit more. When the woman falls into sin, you could say in a way she becomes, you know, she's deceived by the serpent. The serpent is still deceiving women today. He's still telling lies that, that women fall for. Um, and one of those lies, uh, you know, th- those lies can lead to discontentment. Um, one of those lies is that God does not have your best interest in view or your husband does not have your best interest in view at the command, you know, because we know that he had commanded her, uh, to not eat of the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil. God gave that command to Adam before he created the woman. So that's the only way she could learn it is from him. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you, you, could say Eve really becomes the first feminist, uh, Adam becomes a kind of male chauvinist pig, as Jim Jordan has put it, because he just stands by and watches all this unfold. He becomes an effeminate, abdicating uh, man who really is no man at all. He, he emasculates himself. Instead of going to war with the serpent, he just stands by and watches. So just as the man and the woman in their sanctification are to complement one another, so he's growing in God-like, in in. in Uh, God-like masculinity, or we could say Christ-like masculinity. She's growing in church-like femininity, to go back to what you said earlier, Larson. You have the perversion of that in both ways in Genesis uh, chapter 3. She no longer acts like the feminine, submissive bride that she's supposed to be. She takes the initiative and she grabs hold of the fruit and then gives some to him. Okay, so she becomes sort of the pastor of this church where she's handing out the elements for the sacred meal, and he becomes this, you know, this passive effeminate um, shell of a man. Now, here's the thing. Um, She becomes the first feminist. He becomes the first chauvinist. Um, I would say that, you know, in in our culture today, you know, we've got, uh, you know, you've got kind of the alphabet soup of sexual perversion. LGBTQ and and all that goes with that. I really think if we really want to understand the LGBTQ movement and what's going on with all of this sexual confusion in our culture, you have to put an F in front of it for feminism. Feminism um, is yeah. the original transgender movement. I think it's feminism that through opening the the door to the sexual revolution uh, you gave us, uh, in, in, many ways, the, the gay and lesbian movement. Uh, but, but I think now you're seeing that trickle down to transgenderism. So I say, instead of talking about LGBTQ, we need to talk about F L G B T Q. Okay. So F L G B T Q. So, uh, I know F sometimes gets used in other ways as just an abbreviation, but you get where I'm coming from with this. I mean, it's feminism. Is at the source of this? It's at the root of this. Okay. Uh, so F L G B T Q. Um, what do i mean by that well feminism is all about role reversal and androgyny mm-hmm. it's about trying to yeah. get men to sing soprano it's trying to get women to sing bass uh yeah. that's really what it's about it's not enough to be a part of the same choir it's that the roles have to be reversed and so it it, it has created all kinds of confusion And I think you're seeing that confusion start to play out. It's in slow motion. So if you're not really paying attention, it may not, you know, you, you can miss certain things that are going on. But you're seeing all kinds of confusion now play out. And I think what's happening, especially with young women today, is young women have been, in many cases, greatly radicalized. Uh, and this is, this is the ultimate outworking of feminism in our society. So there was an article actually that just came out the other day and I'm drawing a blank on the name of it, but basically it was, it was sort of, you know, what's the end game with the single woke female, uh, that now is so common. Um, women who are not married, have no interest in marriage, little to no interest in children, Uh, totally focused on their careers. And these are women who are mostly in their 20s and 30s, but maybe also into their 40s. But if you look at, say, for example, um, voting patterns, um, married men and women both tend to vote conservative. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Single men tend to vote conservative. Single women, more than any other group, skew hard to the left. towards progressivism. And, uh, so, um, and this is something to really keep an eye on because what you have is now a a group of women who have been told that marriage is this oppressive institution. They want nothing to do with it. They want to live sexually libertine lifestyles because they think that's truly empowering. Uh, they want to be able to dress immodestly and then accuse men of objectifying them. Um, so there's just, there's a lot of, um, you know, they're totally focused on their careers, thinking that's what's going to fulfill them, and that children would just get in the way of that. So they don't want children. And you're going to see as this group gets older. Uh, you're going to have a lot of women. Scott Yenner actually has addressed this too. I can't even remember who, who who wrote wrote the article that I'm referencing, and maybe we can put it in the in the show notes if people want to take a look at yeah. it. But sure. Scott Yenner also has addressed this pretty extensively as well. Uh, the misery of modern woman. She mm-hmm. she's been sold a bill of goods. She's been yeah. fed this lie that living an independent marriage-free, child-free life of sexual libertinism focused on her career is going to make her happy. And maybe right. there's, a, you know, oftentimes when we, when we get what we think we wanted, when we go for Satan's temptation, there's a kind of momentary fulfillment. And it might be for, that for a lot of these women in their twenties and into their thirties, they are happy yeah. uh, or, or they think they're happy. But as they get older and their career's not so fulfilling anymore and they start to realize that the biological clock is ticking and they've missed the window on their fertility and now exactly. children are not going to be a possibility for them, there's a lot of misery that begins to set in. And uh, this is something that I think if, if we as shepherds, you know, I'm a pastor, you're an elder, we as shepherds in the church need to be teaching and even warning women about because this, you talked about the social, this yeah. is the social imaginary we live in. That the fulfilled life for a woman today is a life independent of of a man, not dependent upon a man in any kind of way, uh, focused on career. Children are perhaps a life accessory if you want them later on, but probably going to get in the way of what makes you most fulfilled. And so it's really a rebellion against uh, motherhood. Uh, it's, yeah. it's a rebellion yeah. against being a wife and, and, and all that comes with marriage, but it's also rebellion against motherhood. It, it's a rejection of that name, Eve, mother of the living.
0: So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. Cause I think this, this is a really helpful thought. And, um, and I don't know if the exegesis is accurate, but I'm going to, I'm going to throw it out there and see what you think. I read an article recently talking about that first Timothy, uh, verse, uh, that she'll be saved through the, the, the women will be saved through childbearing. Uh, if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with self-control, so um, there's a, a a pastor or a professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, Andreas Kostenberger. Yep, uh, yeah, I'm familiar with him. And he looks at that word "saved" there, and it's not the word that we see in the New Testament for for salvation mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. in the uh, you know in the sense that that uh, you justification and faith and that sort of thing, but it's it, it's actually Um, it's the word sozo, which means to keep safe and sound, uh, rescue from danger or destruction or to preserve. And so his, his reading of that passage is, is essentially women will be spiritually preserved or protected from Satan by adhering to their God ordained role related to the family and the home. Um, so, so that's his reading of, of that passage in first Timothy um, and and it, it seems to me to 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 really if read through that lens and understand understood that way, I think it, it provides a lot of clarity to um, you know to, to the rest of Timothy. You know, keep a close watch on yourself and on the on teaching. You know, um, uh, persist in this for so for by so doing, uh, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Um, And just, and just, you know, New Testament teaching on, you know, not permitting a woman to teach and and things like that. It's, it's, it's alluding back to this concept that, that you are, that you are saved, you are, you are, you are fulfilled. You are going to be um, kept from grave temptation um, and danger by adhering to God's ordained design for
1: yeah, I think that's right. So I, I would actually say that there's a little bit, I think I think Kostenberger's right. I would say there's a little bit more going on there. And and this is why, and I'll just read the verse. This is this is King James, notwithstanding, this is 1 Timothy 2 15. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. A Couple interesting things here. One, she shall be saved if they continue. So a a shift from the singular she to the plural they, to women in general. Also, in childbearing, actually in the Greek, it is in the childbirth. Uh, Mm. It's got the definite article there. So I think the first part of the verse there is redemptive historical. It's talking about the woman's role in redemptive history. Uh, A woman uh, brought, you know, a a, a woman sinned first, you could say. Now, obviously, Adam was sinning right alongside her, but she's the first to eat of... Uh, of the fruit uh the 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 tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but the woman's going to have a role to play in redemption as well, uh, in that she is going to be the uh, the one who bears the Messiah into the world so this goes back to genesis three fifteen what we talked about last time, uh, the seed of the woman, the woman will give birth to a seed, and all throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament really in a lot of ways is the story of the seed of the woman being preserved. So the woman and her seed. So for example, it's so interesting right after this promise that the woman is going to give birth to a deliverer, a new Adam, a Messiah in Genesis three, uh, what happened? You know, we'll skip over the Cain and Abel story, even though that's very relevant to this too. But as you read through Genesis, you keep running into these women who are barren. All the patriarchs of the uh, uh, all the all the patriarchs' wives uh, in Genesis are barren. Well, that can't just be a coincidence. That that's just right. too strange to just be right. a coincidence. Satan is stopping up their wombs because he doesn't want the mm-hmm. seed of the woman come into the world. And so again right. and again, God gives a miraculous birth to the woman and the seed line is preserved. So these are women who are saved through the childbirth because they keep the messianic line going. At some point in, in the future, this child's going to be born, but you have to get there. So you have to have generations continue. Uh, you have to have women giving birth. Um, in the book of Exodus, the, the the attack shifts to the seed himself and Pharaoh wants to kill all the baby boys. So now it's not barrenness, but it's an attack. It's not an attack on uh, the woman's womb but the fruit of the womb so the baby boys are supposed to be put to death and of course it's the hebrew it's the the egyptian midwives who lie to pharaoh so pharaoh has become a serpent figure okay the serpent deceived the woman in the garden well now the egyptian midwives fight back using deception so Woman was deceived, now woman becomes the deceiver. That's justified righteous deception to protect those baby boys. Um, but then you continue on in the Old Testament, there's this constant attention paid to genealogies, uh, paid to, um, you know, the, and of course the line narrows down. We go from, uh, from, uh, the, you know, obviously the whole nation of Israel chosen to be the one through whom the promised seed would come down to the tribe of Judah and so forth. Uh, but then of course it all comes down to Mary and maybe you've seen that meme that goes around, especially during Christmas time. And you've got Eve and she's got her hand on the pregnant belly of Mary. And then Mary is stepping on the serpent. And I think that's a yeah. really lovely picture of, of, of what first Timothy two fifteen, the first part of the verse is talking about, um, the woman played a special unique role in the fall and the woman will play a special unique role in, uh, in, in salvation. So it's not that Mary becomes some kind of co mediator, co savior, something like that. Roman Catholics obviously have taken that way, right, way, right. Uh, you know, in, in a very, um, anti-biblical way, but she does play a role in redemptive history in, in the salvation of the world. But then that, be, you know, Mary then becomes the model of, for women. And so that's where I think then Kostenberger is right. What is obviously now that the Messiah has come, we're not awaiting the childbirth. Genesis 315, right. the seed of the woman has come. But what does that mean now? Well, in general, not that there aren't exceptions to this, because certainly there are some women who are just like some men who are gifted with celibacy and who are called to, um, to a celibate or single life uh, without marriage and children. In general, for the vast majority of women, the way that they can grow in sanctification, the way that they can be preserved from rebelling in the kinds of ways that Eve rebelled in the beginning, uh, is to stick very close to this calling to yeah. devote themselves to being wives and mothers. And so you see that in passages like Titus chapter 2. You know, Titus chapter 2 is really interesting because it tells us what the role of the woman is. Titus 2, older women are to teach younger women. This is Titus 2 picking up in verse 4. Older women are to teach the younger women to be sober. So, you know, moms are obsessed with drinking wine, to numb themselves, to... (laughs) <laughs> the fact that they don't like being mothers, which you hear so much right. about today, that that's not necessarily yeah. a good thing. Obviously, a glass of wine is fine, but you need to stay sober. So older women are to teach younger women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet chaste, so to dress in beautiful but modest ways, to be keepers at home, that's a key one, to be homemakers or keepers at home, so to devote themselves to the household, to the good of the household, the well-being of the household, Um, to be good, to be obedient to their husbands, that's obviously very offensive, the fact that, that a woman would have to be obedient to her husband, that the word of God may not be blasphemed because if a woman departs from these um, instructions, it's going to lead to the Word of God being blasphemed. So we could debate what kind of content fills in, what does it mean to be a homemaker or a keeper at home. Obviously, what, what it means to be a keeper at home in 2022 is different from 1822 or 522 or or, or what have you, because Uh, What happens in our households has has shifted. But obviously, children are in the household, so that's a big part of it. There's always uh, work to be done to maintain the household, the household finances and cleanliness and order and whatnot. Those are all things that women are commanded to give themselves to. They're to be domestic in this way. Now, some people say, well, does that mean that a woman can never have a job outside of the home? And I would say, no, that's not. It doesn't say that Uh, to be a keeper at home is not necessarily does not necessarily necessarily rule out um, various pursuits that might take her outside of the home, but the home is always the center and her priority. The household always mm-hmm. takes precedence over everything else in the woman's life. So this whole idea that the man goes out to make a living, to provide for the family, and she manages the home and 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 oversees the home as uh, sort of her domestic environment, That's that's an entirely biblical division of labor between a husband and wife. And obviously, the details of that, the specifics of that can vary from couple to couple and from one time and place to another time and place, but that's the basic pattern given us in scripture. And, uh, I think it's really, really important. Now I want to add a few more things to this, uh, because I think there, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot more that can be said about this, but, but another way that you see this, um, I would say feminist rebellion happening is in the woman's rebellion against the home. Uh, and against being a homemaker. And so you see lots of jokes. Oh, you just want me barefoot and pregnant, that kind of thing. Or, you know, jokes about the woman's places in the kitchen or go make me a sandwich kind of stuff. OK. And, I you know, obviously got to keep our sense of humor about these things. But there, there's been there's this obvious uh, rebellion against. That kind of calling as if it's not something glorious, well in reality, the home is glorious, and this is where I think g k Chester, G.K. Chesterton can yeah. really really help us Chesterton and I know there's you know there's issues you can raise with Chesterton uh, he became a Papist, which i don 't like, he certainly did not understand Calvinism well there's a lot of things about Chesterton that you could criticize. Yeah. But his writings on home and family life, I think, are really, really fun, enjoyable, and generally on point. Um, There's actually a collection of essays that was put out several years ago, uh, I think by Ignatius Press, called Brave New Family, which is really, really good. But so so Chester makes makes points like this, and I'll just throw a few of these out to you. You know, he says, think about this. the, the woman who is devoted to being a wife and a mother, the Titus 2 type woman who is committed to loving her husband, loving her children, being obedient to her husband, being a keeper at home. Um, what, 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 does that, what does that mean? Chesterton says, why is it considered liberating for a woman to obey a boss, but considered degrading for her to have to obey her husband? The reality is that if she were to die tomorrow, her boss would find a replacement right away. Yeah. But her 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 husband and her children would never replace her. They There they, right. they, they would always be a hole there in their lives. She's so much more valuable at home than at work. It's it's it's, it's just like Satan has, this is a satanic deception where people, where women have been led to think, oh, I'm more important at work than I am at home. When in reality, right. it's just the opposite. You're easily yeah. replaceable at work. You're irreplaceable at home. Why do you think it is glorious and liberating to submit to a boss while, while it would be degrading to submit to a husband? Uh, why do you think that it would be uh, that the, the, this liberation can be found in the office, whereas everything done at home is drudgery? Okay, that's just not so. Um, here's, here's another example uh, that Chesterton gives. Um, Chesterton, well, he, he's got this line where he says, um, he says, uh, a feminist, he says, the whole feminist movement is, um, you know, young women saying, Uh, We will not be dictated to and then going off to become stenographers, which, of course, we don't really have stenographers anymore, but a stenographer takes dictation, okay? Uh, So he just points out the contradictions inherent in feminism, that the whole value scale has been flipped and it's actually not nearly as fulfilling to build basically a a business for a corporation to contribute that as it would be at, at home. You know, why, you know, in the workplace you're a few things to a lot of people. But at home, you're everything to a small number of people who love you and who you love. And, and, and so it's just, it's 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 uh, there's a lot of confusion there. And I think Chesterton is really right to point that out. And I would strongly recommend reading Chesterton. Yeah. Um, one other uh, figure that I think should be read, and she is not a Christian, but she's got a lot of really interesting um things to say, is Erica Commissar. Mm. Uh, Erica Commissar has written a book called, um, I think it's called Being There, and uh, it's on motherhood. And basically, you know, she is, um, as I understand it, she's basically kind of a secular Jewish person, but she's, it seems fairly conservative, at least with a lot of her conclusions. But, um, and, and and there are things in the book I don't agree with, particularly her political proposals, which still are kind of career centric for the woman. But in the book, she develops arguments based on science and sociology and psychology, and I would actually say also a good deal of common sense, where she argues that it's absolutely vital for mothers to be fully devoted to their children for at least the first thousand days of the child's life. So basically, that gets you to three years old. Now, I would extend that out to five or seven or even further. I mean, I think there's a lot of benefit in having mothers who are not distracted by other things i realize there's a lot of pressure in today's world to be a two-income family and whatnot but um, your children are more important than money your children are more important than stuff and so make them the priority Uh, but but what commissar says is that a lot of the problems we're seeing as kids get older psychological problems relational problems um, what might be called mental health problems like high anxiety or uh, inability to bond relationally with other people. Um, a lot of those things stem back to the fact that there's a, there's a, there's a mother hunger that was never satisfied in the child's life. And it's because the mother, um, you know, to start, you know, took maternity leave and then started dropping the kid off at daycare so she could go back to work right away. And so Commissar actually goes into the details of the research that's been done on daycare and how harmful it can be. Now, I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty here. If, you've, if you're in a situation where you've had no choice but to put your child in daycare, okay, you know, we trust God to be merciful in such situations and compensate for what is lacking. But as a general rule, daycare is a disaster. No daycare worker can ever love yeah. and nurture and discipline and teach a child the way a mother can. Yeah. And we just need to be honest about that. We're te- The culture will not let us be honest, but we have to speak the truth in the face of lies. Yeah. And the truth is there's no daycare worker who's going to do for your child what a mother can do. Uh, so in those foundational years, m- what I would say is motherhood with small children is not the kind of thing that can be outsourced to anybody else. And it's not the kind of thing that can be easily combined with something else. You know, women today say, I want to have it all. I want to have, you know, the kids and the, and the family, the beautiful family and all that. And I want to have the high powered, successful career. Well, the reality is you can't have it all. That's just a, that's one of those satanic lies. You cannot have it all. You have to make choices. Yeah. You have to make trade-offs. That's just how it is. Uh, you cannot have it all—at least not at the same time. You know, maybe you can raise your kids, and then once they're grown, you can go—you know—pursue a career then, or something like that. But you cannot have everything all at the same time, and you have to face the limitations of that, and you have to be honest about how demanding motherhood is. You know, we see mothers all the time. Um, you know, women today will complain, "Oh, it's so hard because I've got a." watch the kids and i've got to do all this for work and i've got to you know do the chores around the house and my husband you know maybe helps a little bit but not much and there's all this other stuff i've got i would just say well stop doing it nobody put a gun to your head and said you had to choose to live this way just stop it right most of those things you're juggling you should just drop them and focus on what is most important right which is going to be your husband and your kids it's going to be your household it's not going to be your your work your career out there right focus on what's most important we can't say that kids are important and motherhood is not. If the children are a future, if, if, if the children are incredibly valuable, then motherhood is incredibly valuable, too. And that means that mothers need to be set free to be mothers and to not have to deal with all the distractions or pressures of everything else that, you know, that our culture right now is is putting on them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there's a, you know, the... Uh, I think the the message that that we have to teach here that's um, so important it, is really what you, you've already said it a bunch of times but just to reiterate that 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 modern women have been deceived you know that 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 feminists are delusional um, and they just objectively are delusional I was I, there's a there's a YouTube a youtuber that I've I've started. Listening to her videos, um Pearl is her name. I think. I think her channel is like Just Pearly Things. But she, her whole thing is like she just gets modern women on her show and she starts talking to yeah. them about yeah. gender issues, about about dating I mean, issues. We'll flip Have you seen this gal? But she, yeah. she's phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, she cracks me up. But she's but she talks about. I mean, her statistics are on point. She talks about how, you know. 80 uh, women view 80 percent of men as unattractive, you know, um, and, uh, and 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 like some super high percentage aren't interested in a man who's under six foot. And, and that's only 15 percent of men. And 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 something like dating apps, which is like how most modern women are 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 finding, you know, uh, a, a boyfriend or a spouse that only that women only swipe right. Um, like five percent of men, which means like only five percent of the time do they deem a a man on the, one of those apps as worthy of even talking to. Women are highly,
1: highly selective.
0: Super selective, and and the funny thing is, you know, not funny but crazy thing is that at the same time, the the rates of celibacy amongst and, and involuntary celibacy among men, you know, so, some th- that rate is just rising and rising and rising. So men are having less and less sex than they've ever had um, since like the fifties. And, and it's because, uh, it's because women are really selective and they're all sleeping with the same small percentage of men. So they view all men as terrible, but it's because the men that, that they're hooking up with are the, are this small little percentage
1: of men. Um, well, psychologically, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Psychologically, this is what's happening. And see, so feminism and the sexual revolution go hand in hand. Yeah. Okay. Feminism is kind of the political side of it, the sexual revolution is kind of the yeah. social side of it. So, and, and both were all about breaking down uh, not just norms for men and women, what's expected of men, what's expected of women, but also breaking down sexual tr- traditional Christian sexual morality. Right. And, and if you go back and you read the early feminists, they're very explicit about this: that uh, that they know that in order to "quote unquote" smash the patriarchy, they have to destroy um, they have to destroy uh, the, the strictures on things like premarital sex. Right. Uh, and so, the free love movement and feminism go hand in hand. Right. Okay, so um, so so what's happening now is that you have these women who may be very. let's let's just say average women who will uh, sleep with a very above average man. And because this above average man has slept with him, now they think, oh, that's the kind of man I should be able to marry. Well, no, he had no interest in marrying you, and he would never marry you. He was just using you for sexual gratification. But now the the term the red pill guys use is alpha widowed. She's been alpha widowed. She has slept with an alpha Mm And she's decided that's what she wants. And because she this guy had sex with her, that means that's the kind of man that she can get. When in reality, her prospects for marriage are actually much different. And it may not be the guy with, you know, six foot tall, uh, six figure salary pack six pack abdomen, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, she, she she's not going to get that kind of guy and, right. and she has to be realistic about her prospects, but because a guy like that had sex with her one time, she thinks that right. she can get that kind of right. guy. And so it just really skews the dating so market. Right. So a lot of women can sort of price themselves out of it because their, their, their expectations, expectations and all these other right. things are way out of alignment. Right. Now, of course, as Christians, we would say, obviously, the most important thing is that you marry a, a, a fellow believer. You, know, you have to marry in, in the Lord, in the faith. Uh, and and we would put a much higher premium on character, but we would also say these other things like physical attraction and whatnot are important. They do matter. Marriage is a sexual relationship. And so sexual attraction does matter. Uh, there's no question about that. We're not Gnostic. We're not denying the importance of say physical beauty or something like that. But the whole, the whole dynamic between men and women has been destroyed. It's been disrupted by, um, by sexual promiscuity, by f- widespread fornication, yeah. it's just thrown things way off. So, uh, so again, yes, now you have these women who have stand, who have completely unrealistic standards right. for what they expect in a man, and then you got all these men who are, you know, it, it's kind, it's it's um, it's kind, it's it's really like in in a in ancient polygamous societies, people, oh, polygamy, you know, was so bad for women. Well, the reality is. Polygamy was bad for everybody. Right. It was bad for men too. Right. Um obviously, you know, women having to share husbands, that's far from ideal. Right. The plus side is that they were generally sharing a really high-status man. Right. It was only really high-status men who could have multiple wives. Right. But just think about this: for every man who took a, a second or a third or a fourth wife, there were one, you know, there was one man or two men or three men or four men out there who got no wife That's at right. all. Yep. you know. So again, I don't know if this is really accurate or not, but you know, supposedly the the studies show that something like sixty or seventy percent of men who have ever lived have not reproduced that's crazy uh that 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 it's actually less than 50 percent of men who have ever lived who actually got to reproduce themselves because uh there were not enough women to go around because there were some men who took more than one white you know the powerful wealthy men would take more than one woman yeah i think that the the way
0: i've always i've always thought about the sexual revolution it's it's i mean it's obvious because i'm a man so i'm i'm hearing it through the lens of of a man and thinking, man, men, you know, we are such scumbags men are such scumbags and the sexual revolution is just a great example of how, how bad we are. And, and, you know, not to take anything away from that, that's all true. Well, and good, but it's interesting that, that the deeper you dig into this, the, the more you realize, like, it seems like women have been far more deceived and far more taken in by the sexual revolution and it's affected them. Um, very, very deeply. Um, it, it, the other thing, this is kind of connected, but the other thing that's interesting to me is well, there's a couple things. One, one like First Timothy, we're talking about the passage, you know, where women are saved through childbirth. But right before that, Paul's saying that he doesn't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority because because Eve was deceived, the woman was deceived, right? And so it's like
1: the man, was, man was made first, and the woman was deceived. That's right. That's right.
0: And yeah. so it's like so so. This this idea that women, you know, it, it all starts somewhere. I mean, all these like, again, nobody comes to these. You don't become a modern feminist woman by uh, assenting to all of the propositions. You, it's just it's just as we talked about at the beginning. But there's all these different Settling. pieces that have to fall. One is that you have to become an authority, you know, unto yourself uh, in some way and reject the idea that you can be taught or should be taught by a man um or by scripture it's written by a bunch of men right i also found it interesting i was reading in genesis 20 this morning and it's just interesting how frequently in genesis god's stopping up wounds you know uh it's just like it's just kind of a ho-hum thing it's genesis 20 at the end of the passage it's the section about abimelech um but but it's like right there at the end uh he's it, it just kind of in passing goes and, you know, and then, and then, uh, and then Abraham prayed uh, to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and the female slaves so that they bore children for the Lord and closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Mm-hmm. So it's just like this, uh, you know, you wonder, <laughs> I mean, the the Romans one that God's judgment is him giving people over to their sin you just wonder how commonly when when God sees rebellion uh, in women, that he just gives them over and shuts their wombs and, and, and that their sexual promiscuity and their lack of children is just it's his judgment. You know, I mean, they view it as their own independence and freedom, but it's really it's really just God judging
1: them. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, you know, there, there's this saying in Proverbs and it's really about wisdom. All those who hate me love death. And that's what we're seeing in our culture, a rejection of God's wisdom, a rejection of God's ways, a rejection of God's himself. I said, when you reject God, you reject reality. Okay, that's true. But when you reject God, you also reject life and you choose death. And that's what's happening. So, you have people who, you know, so they have fur babies and they count their pets as their children because right. they're not going to have any children of their own. Well, right. that, that's, that, that's lame, pathetic, and stupid. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not, it's, having a dog is not the same as having a baby. You have not been, been fruitful and multiplied just because you have a couple puppies or cats around. Right. You talk about the social imaginary. Consider this this was um, President Biden on Twitter. In in the aftermath of COVID, this is what he said. Okay, it's a quote from Biden. Nearly two million women in our country have been locked out of the workforce because they have to care for for a child or elderly. I'm sorry, elderly relative at home. Okay, Biden was lamenting the fact that COVID drove women back into their households. They had to care for their own children and aging parents. (laughs) As if this was some great tragedy or injustice. Yeah. See, if you operate on feminist androgynous principles, if that's your presupposition, then anything men do that women don't is considered an injustice. Mm -hmm. Okay. It it can't be because men and women are different and might choose different things. It's got to be because there's some sinister injustice at work. So I mean yeah, so there's a lot of examples way, of this. COVID, when is, when is,
0: COVID forced uh COVID created a situation where where children and elderly were cared by somebody who loves them. <laughs> For the first time.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, that's the way to look. And it's funny because I also saw articles come out about the time that, you know, all the, all the lockdowns were, had been going on for a while. So a lot of articles come out talking about how much women actually found they enjoyed being at home right, with their kids. Right, right. <laughs> it's like they discovered, oh, wow, the household actually can be this, this good and glorious place. Okay, but several things there. One is, why is the government so interested in separating mothers from their children? You know, trying to push women b- away from the house, back into the workforce. That's one thing that I'll make you very suspicious. Okay, another thing is the way this is framed is in terms of some kind of great injustice, okay? But the reality is it's not an injustice. It's just it, it, it is just the fact that men and women are different, and we really do have different roles to play. We have different natures and different interests. It's the same kind of thing with that you hear with the pay gap between men and women. The reality is there is no pay gap between men and women. Men and women get paid the same for the same work. It, it, it happens all the time. Uh, and, and the reality is if a company... Could get away with paying women, you know, say seventy-five cents on the dollar compared to a man. All a company would have to do is hire a bunch of women, pay them less, and put all their competitors out of business. Okay, because if you could get cheaper labor, but that doesn't happen. And then, and really, anybody who's a serious economist knows this: that the 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 so-called you know gender pay gap is. It's a lie. Uh, it's a myth. It's it's just you know more more lies heard, uh, than being fed. But here's the thing: the, to the extent that there is a gap between men and women in terms of what they earn, right. it is because men and women make different choices. That's right. Men are more likely to go into more difficult STEM majors in college and pursue specialized uh, type of work that requires many more years of training and then work longer hours. Yeah. Whereas women tend to want. Uh, jobs that are more family and home friendly. I mean, you go back to Simone de Beauvoir, I think is the one who said this, one of the, again, one of the architects of modern day feminism who said women must not be allowed the choice to be at home with their children. Because if given the choice, too many women will make that choice. Mm. So again, the whole idea, we got to get women out of the home and into the workforce. That's the key, because that's that's what kind of does away with sex differences. Well, and that's, uh, we that's what's happened. Pretend to be androgynous in the workforce.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's what's happened in the modern world, is, is it has become so socially uncomfortable for a woman to stay home. She has to answer this question every time she goes out in public, like, what do you, what do you do? What do you
1: do all day? Where do you work? Right.
0: Right. And so it's become so shameful, um, that, 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 that that's essentially been accomplished. Yeah. The stat, one of the stats you hear, I've heard Jordan Peterson cite this a bunch of times that I think it's Sweden is the most, um, has been the most successful country in the world in, in being, Completely egalitarian um, in in all of their right. policies and all of their schools and and every every way shape or form they've been the most thoroughgoing egalitarian country in the world, and and yet they show an even greater disparity an even greater um, trend towards women you know choosing the caring fields like nursing and men choosing. You know, science and engineering so so in places where yeah, they,
1: they yeah they, yeah, they call this the Scandinavian paradox Scandinavian, because yeah. the Scandinavian countries have been the most deliberate and intentional in trying yeah. to train people to, to be androgynous, so we 're going to eliminate sex differences when it comes to say uh, education and parenting we 're going to do all we can. To eliminate sex differences, and and basically, you're not a male or female; yeah. you're just a person.
0: I saw an interview, and, with, and, and then uh, and, and, sorry, go ahead.
1: Well, I was going to say, yeah. So, so they were. the thinking was, okay, when we do this, we're going to end yep. up with, you know, out of our engineers, it'll be 50% men and 50% yep. women and nurses will be 50% men and 50% yep. women and elementary school teachers will be 50% men and 50% women. And actually what they found, and this is why they call it the Scandinavian paradox, their attempt to create this, you know, sort of egalitarian androgynous paradise completely backfired because the numbers skewed even harder towards the extremes. Right. So given the choice, given the freedom, women will choose yes nurturing professions and men will choose more technical professions right. Right. It, it's just and, and that's the and and you cannot say that's an injustice it's just realities because right. men and women are different one of the things one of the things feminism has done and so this this is this is a little bit related to what to the scandinavian paradox but it's also a little bit different Feminism has had this tendency to take what were considered in the past male obligations mm-hmm. to and then to rebrand them as male privileges and then to say, well, this privilege must be open to women. So think about uh, the military. Okay, Men have always had an obligation to uh, be in the military. Not, not necessarily that every man needs to go into the military, but the draft. So if your country needed you, if you're a male – you could be drafted, you could be forced to go and fight for your country. That was a male obligation. Men had that obligation, women did not. I remember during one of the uh, congressional abortion hearings, a, a, uh, pro, a, a pro-choice a um, pro congressperson was asking, somebody well is there any you know do we put any laws on men's bodies like you're wanting to do with abortion where we were and i'm thinking you know the draft (laughs) that we actually force men to go to war so you know uh that's not my body my choice at that point um so you know uh it's, it's not all comparable to abortion anyway but that was the argument that was being made but anyway this was a male obligation women did not have that obligation okay But then you had, because of feminism, women who said, hey, it's not fair that men get to be in combat and we don't, Mm -hmm. as if this was a privilege instead of an obligation that men had. So we want to have access to combat roles in the military as well. And so then the military, because our military buys into this egalitarian, androgynous nonsense, these utter lies, the entire military has to be reorganized around the, the preferences and desires of a handful of women right. who want to be in combat. Yeah. And so we spend millions of dollars and we, we have a less effective fighting force. I mean, again, all the statistics bear this out. It's actually far more dangerous to put women, to embed women in combat troops with men. It's, it's very dangerous, very stupid to do, but we do it because of this egalitarian androgynous commitment that we have. And so what was a male obligation gets recasted as male privilege and then women demand access to it. And then everything has to be reorganized in order to give women that access uh, that they desire so they can do, even if it's just a tiny handful of women, so that they can do what men have had to do. Uh, and and there's, a, there's a kind of uh, craziness to it. And again, it's just it goes against reality. And Scripture is really clear about who has the obligation to defend the nation Uh, That it's an obligation that falls to men, uh, and that it's shameful for women to have to enter into combat um, on behalf of a nation. A nation that would put forward its women to fight an enemy is not a nation that's worth defending uh, any longer, really.
0: He said, I don't really know. Um, but he said, I also don't know why women models yep. make so yep. much more than men models. He's like, uh, yeah. um, in the fashion industry,
1: he said, but yeah. it yeah. doesn't really matter. I men. mean, yeah, but, and, and I know he got in trouble <laughs> for saying that, but yeah. he's exactly right. I'll tell you why. It's because, uh, you know, the, Venus and Serena Williams would be considered two of the greatest tennis players ever f- on the female side. And um, they both were beaten handily by the 200th ranked male player. I mean, you can, you can go look this up as documented yeah. and it was kind of just yeah. a, you know, I mean, he said, it's funny, I forget the guy's name. He's so obscure. <laughs> he ranked 200, but he says, American yeah, I didn't even uh, really warm up. And next yeah. thing you know, he's up like six, yeah. one, you know, uh, he just dominates and he's, he, you know, so he's, uh, you know, he's not near the, the, as highly ranked as a man as they are in the world. It's
0: shameful that we live in a time where we have to actually do
1: that. So that's or yeah. think about this.
0: Yeah, it's, it's shameful that we live in a time where we're so delusional about this stuff that that, that even is a conversation and, and somebody has to go out and prove it. Because because it, the social imaginary has been so, so uh, effectively adopted by everyone that, that women literally think that that they actually could beat a man in a tennis, uh, you know, a, 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 a it's, high it's like the, professional the, man. The, the U.S. You know, it's national
1: like, Women's Soccer Team lost to Europe? a bunch of 12 year old boys. I don't remember exactly the age, but it, you know, it was, it was, yeah. it was basically some teenage boys, yeah, uh, maybe it was a, maybe it's a U15, yeah. U15 team, something like that. And then and, and the, and the boys beat the, beat the women's yeah. team exactly. uh, or why the WNBA, you know, d- yeah. does anybody think there's any WNBA player that could make it in the NBA? No, of course. I mean, just, of course not. There's just no way. So uh, yeah, there's, there's a reason for that, but yes, I mean, um, Rafael Nadal was right. I mean, if you go into say the fashion industry, Uh, then it's totally different. And there it's going to be women making way, way, way more money than, than men. Uh, And again, this just has to do with differences between men and women and differences in terms of what we, what what we value or differences in terms of the natures of men and women. So uh, it's just the way it is. And it's not something we should fight. It's something we should accept as this is how God made the world. God made men and women different. Uh, we serve different roles, different purposes. We're, des- we're, we're designed and, and suited for those different callings that God has given to us. And that's the way it is. And that's very good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, my, uh, my, my Internet's dropped in and out a couple of times here, so I don't have my timer to see actually how long we've been going. Well, might, it's been more be than just a minute. End, but I'll tell you um, that. What are we looking like? <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I figured. I figured as much. Well, any closing thoughts, yeah, yeah, Pastor you, Lusk, uh, on this topic of uh, you know the glories of the motherhood? And I, yeah, I think uh,
1: you know motherhood needs to be valued for the glorious thing that it is, and our culture does not do that. So you hear a lot today about the war on men. You know, Warren Farrell and others have have drawn attention to this: the the war on manhood and masculinity. And and there is there ha- there's no question. There's been a war on manhood, a war on masculinity, and so men, you know, boys transitioning into manhood today often lack confidence. They don't really know what it means to be a man. They don't know what's to be expected of them. All of their role models on commercials and whatnot are very effeminate type men, not good role models at all for them. And so men have a lot of confusion. But there's also a war on femininity. And that war on femininity, I think, especially comes to expression in this war on motherhood, this attack on motherhood. And I think it's something that the church needs to lead the way in pushing back against. The church should be a place where motherhood is honored and glorified and recognized uh, for for the wonderful thing that it is. And... um, and women need, need to be praised and encouraged to pursue motherhood and to pursue being keepers at home or homemakers and in, in using their gifts and talents in ways that serve the good of their household fundamentally. That should be the chief priority. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that's really, really yeah. crucial. I think in yeah. terms of where we go from here, Larson, I think it'd be great to come back at some point and do an episode on raising sons and daughters. I know you've done some Sunday school yeah. teaching on that, and I've done some yeah. work on that too. But I, you know, because yeah. that, that's really... The the next question, I think, is how do you raise sons to grow into mature men? How do you raise daughters to grow into mature women so that you'll have a, a generation yeah. of men who will embrace their calling to protect and provide And you'll have a generation of women who will embrace this high calling of motherhood, who will want to be wives and mothers and see that as a glorious thing. And of course, also how do you protect your kids from these lies of the sexual revolution and feminism and the F LGBTQ stuff, all of that. So uh, all that's obviously really important. Right.
0: Right. You know, something interesting as you were talking there, Rich, I was thinking about, and, and I don't want to overemphasize this, but I do think it's just interesting that, that, you know, um, the stakes, it seems like for women are maybe even higher in the sense that, um, in the sense that, you know, uh, nature kind of runs its course and, and men that whatever errors a, a young man may have, he's probably through hard knocks through life. He's going to start to, God's going to kind of beat him up and teach him those lessons and he's going to eventually figure them out. But, 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 you know, women have a biological clock and if women really are preserved, saved through childbearing, if there really is a, a, um, an essential, you know, part of their life that, 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 uh, is tied to uh, and tied to their, their holiness and their, and their walk with the Lord that's tied to their role as a mother, um, you know, this war is being waged against women, against femininity, um, you know, in the trenches Absolutely. with young ladies, especially, you know, on social media and TikTok and all these different places. And so, you know, if they can if 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 the world can capture your your daughter's imagination for just just a period there, you know, of 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 ten, twenty years, you know, there can be ir- irrevocable damage. Yeah. Um yeah. that's done. Right, and, and 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 we've talked about it from the flip side probably before on this podcast too that that a woman's um, kind of peak buying power, so to speak, for finding the the best husband uh, is is a fairly short window. I mean, to, you know, eighteen to to thirty. You know, I mean, that's kind of your peak buying power as a woman, uh, because, because the physical is so important to to men that that's going to be, you know, that that's going to be your peak time to find a, find a spouse. And so, and so again, coming back to this, like if, 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 if your daughters can be, if if their imagination can be captured by feminists just for those 10 years, then the damage that, that can be done, um, their options, you know, after those 10 years, if they repent and come to see the the truth, their options are going to be limited, you know, um, they're not going to have the same options that they had uh, when they were when they were in that. Yeah, you're exactly
1: right. And that yeah, that, so you're, a big deal. you're exactly right about that. Uh, for for women, there is a biological clock. This isn't one of those lies. Wh- what's happening now, I think, and again, this is just kind of a broad social trend. I'm not talking about in churches like yours or mine, where obviously you know we still have much more yeah. traditional and I would say biblically formed sensibilities about these things in general. But yeah, women are, are basically are taking the approach that they want to live this fornicating partying career focused lifestyle right up to the last minute. And then right before that window of fertility closes, get married, have a baby and then go back to the career. Yeah. Uh, and so they, they, and so basically, and, and this yeah. is why a lot of men have lost interest in marriage because they kind of look at it as, well, women want to party, you know, they want to sleep with that top five or 10% of men and that kind of thing for all these years. And then I'll just kind of get the leftovers, the scraps once she's kind of, ex, you know, once the party lifestyle is worn out and her her window of fertility is getting yeah. close to closing. And and then, you know, men sort of feel like they're just getting the leftovers. And in a lot of cases, that's true. Of course, the flip side of that is you got yeah. a lot of men who aren't, doing anything with themselves in the meantime. They're not doing anything to, you know, if, if, if based on physical attractiveness, the stats you gave earlier are true, that most women are going to pass over, say 90% of men, if it's just based on physical appearance, what does a man do to make himself attractive? Maybe we need to go do an episode on attraction sometime, but what a man can do, because what a woman will find Mm -hmm. attractive in a man beyond, uh, appearance is, make himself a confident, competent, dominion oriented man. And that doesn't necessarily translate into any particular income or something like that. Although I think ultimately it probably will mean that he'll be much better off financially, but men who exude confidence and competence, uh, are attractive to women over time. And that that's really, really crucial. So, uh, learn some skills, Um, learn how to grow in your own, uh, vocation and how to make the best of your talents and abilities, uh, work hard, uh, pursue excellence. And the problem is you got a lot of men today who have just dropped out of the workforce altogether, uh, because they just, they just don't see any reason for it. So you got actually more women in the workforce today than, than men, which is just really a pathetic commentary on the state of, of manhood in America today. It is.
0: Well, there's there's a thousand things to get to dive into here, and, and it sounds like we've come up with a, at least two or three future episode ideas, so I'll put them on the list. We've got a lot of... I've been taking a lot of notes for the show notes, um, including some of your articles, Rich, that you've written um, on the politics of motherhood and in praise of motherhood. So right. we'll include yeah. those in the show notes as well if you want to dive deeper into this topic. Um, but, sir, it's as been always, a pleasure. Yeah. As always. And, uh, yeah, man, looking forward to, uh, to our next
1: conversation. I am as well. Thank you, Larson. The God a Minute podcast is a ministry of Trinity
0: Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might also like the Good Life podcast, where Matt Carpenter interviews historians, philosophers, authors, and more about how their work contributes to a good life.